Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Previously on Booby Trap. And he looks out the window and he sees Willard Allensworth. He was probably thinking he would take him out to the Everglades somewhere, you know, and shoot him when all was said and done. I can still sentence you to that 30 years hmm. that you could have gotten for the Richard Brush shooting. And so ultimately, in the end, he got seven years. Chuck answers, it had to change the alignment. There's right. no other way it could have been changed. You're talking about the orange tank top. Exactly. This article of clothing was admitted as evidence for forensics, lab testing. And so he set up that booby trap to kill Jerry. Chuck wanted Jerry dead. That's it. Just the facts, ma'am. Sergeant Joe Friday, played by Jack Webb in the classic 1950s television show, Dragnet, consistently called, for just the facts, ma'am. That stance is, without a doubt, a wise one for detectives, just as it is for authors and podcast researchers. But facts, when viewed on their own, don't always tell a reliable story. Joe Friday did ask for just the facts, but he then had to correlate and interpret them. In this podcast, we also need to seek those unembellished facts, using original court transcripts, police reports, and witness testimony to every extent possible. And I hope we've done a good job of doing that. But, just like Sergeant Friday, we need to identify, correlate, and analyze all of the evidence in order to reliably understand it. But as we've come to discover through this series, the facts don't always tell the whole story. In this episode, we'll present alternate scenarios as to what might have really happened on that ill-fated afternoon. With the exception of the official explanation of the crime, these what-if scenarios are pure speculation and conjecture. That being said, we'll offer these alternative explanations with the hope of satisfying and supporting the evidence in a way that the official version does not. We don't want to tell you how or what to think, but to encourage you to apply your own critical thinking skills in deciding for yourselves what really happened on that day in the summer of 1979. Season 1 of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap, Episode 7. So let's go back to your conversation with Tony Simmons in 2010. You've had like, uh, what, over 30 years to think about this? (laughs) And you've drawn your own conclusions about what really happened that day. So what exactly did he tell you that confirmed some of the suspicions that you had? Yeah, um... Well, like I said in episode three, I mean, at first he denied everything. 
and then he called me back the next day. I mean, he admitted to a few things the first time we talked, um, but it was nothing incriminating. Like, it was all just sort of little things, you know, just sort of acknowledging that, you know, he was sort of there and hanging out with Richie, not the night that Richie got shot, but, you know, he had been hanging out with Richie again, like after not hanging out with him for a while. So he just called you back out of the blue the next day, like he just wanted to set the record straight? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, it was night when I talked to him the first time, and we talked probably for about an hour. Mm -hmm. But I would say the first 20 minutes was just chit-chat, just getting caught up, and then, you know, just telling him that I was, at the time, just thinking about writing the book. And um, and like I already said in episode three, you know, he seemed, you know, a little put off. He was just maybe a little distressed, you know, and um, I think he was just hoping that that was something in the past that it would never uh, rear its ugly head ever again. He'd never have to think about or worry about. And so um, he admitted to little things like, yeah, Richie and I were hanging out again. Yeah, Richie was definitely breaking into not just Chuck's house, but like other people's houses and you know, stuff that didn't incriminate him directly, but, you know, just sort of agreeing that it was kind of a problematic phase that Richie was going through and that unfortunately, you know, he got killed. And then, you know, I started asking him stuff that was more where he was directly involved. And I mentioned the cassette. Okay. He, he didn't remember. He remembered, you know, carrying the cassette player and recording people. But he claimed that he didn't remember having the cassette player with him when Richie got killed. This is still the first conversation before he called you back? Right, yeah. This was the initial conversation where he was more denying stuff. Okay. So I told him about some of the stuff I read in his deposition. Because when I talked to him, I already had the, gotten the documents from Dade County, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when he really started getting nervous because he started to realize at that point that I knew that he had tried to incriminate me, that he mentioned my name as being the person who had the keys. What did he say about that? He played dumb. Like, he just played ignorant. He was just like, oh, wow, did, did I give a deposition? I don't remember that or something like that. You know, he was just, just kind of blowing it off, you know? And I just said, no, Tony. I was like, I got it all right here. Like, I can, I can even read you parts from it if you want. And he was like, no, 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 that's cool. And, and I told him, I assured him. I said, look, we were kids at the time. I said, you know, I'm not angry at you. Like, nothing ever happened. The cops never showed up at my house. You know, I let it go. I just said, look, that's not what I'm concerned with right now. I said, what I'm really concerned with is I just, you know, I'm doing research for the book and I just want you to see how much you can remember. And if you can't remember, you can't remember. And so that's what we hung up. We hung up with, you know, him basically claiming that he just didn't remember that much. And there was nothing I could do. It was like, okay, well, I tried, you know. So then he called me the next day, like in the afternoon or something, and he he did remember. I had asked him about the meeting with Chuck in the park, for instance, and I asked him if he remembered that Richie was trying to set me up, you know, make me out to be the scapegoat, and he said he didn't remember any of that. And then the next day, that was the first thing he said. The first thing he commented on was that he did remember me meeting Chuck in the park because he came with me. And he remembered that I was pissed off at him when we were walking home, that like I was kind of lashing out at him because, once again, he had gotten me in one of these sticky situations. Another classic Tony Simmons. Right. <laughs> I was just like, what the hell, you know? <laughs> um, and he told me that Richie, it was Richie's idea and that, you know, that's why Richie was supposed to be there too. But Richie chickened out, you know, at the last minute or something. But they had basically told Chuck that I was the guy breaking into their house. So right there, he admitted that. Now, it's a really interesting admission because psychoanalyzing Tony and the kind of liar he was at the time, he basically lied to make himself seem better. Like he always lied to make himself seem cooler or or more relevant than he actually was, right? So for him to call me the next day and to admit to something like that did not make him seem cooler. It didn't put him anywhere closer to the center of attention. So he wasn't lying 
just to be able to include himself in the story, which, you know, he, he would do that. But uh, in, in this case, it would have been more beneficial for him if he had just not remembered it or just said he didn't remember. Because basically what he was admitting to was setting me up, you know, <laughs> and making me out to be a scapegoat and potentially even getting hurt by Chuck. Mm-hmm. It gave him a lot of credibility and it, it made me believe him more. It made me think that, okay, he's coming clean now. And this is the second, the next day conversation. Um, and yeah, I can't remember exactly how much stuff we covered that day. But from that day going forward, we had a dialogue. So we have to look at the information that he gave me in 2010 and we have to sort of weigh it against the evidence that I already have, you see. And we have to sort of, like his mom said, you know, he mixes the truth with lies. And so the, the trick here is to try to use the evidence to get rid of stuff that's most likely lies. And then the only thing you're left with is what's most plausible. So there's the way in which he described to me the events of that day. Okay. And how it matches up with what I know from the police report. Right. And it could have either just gone south right away because, you know, I'm sitting there looking at the police report, which Tony never had access to. Right. And he's telling me some version of what happened and it's not consistent at all. You know, it's not going to give his story much credibility. But in actuality, the opposite happened. Well, what was Tony's version of what happened that day? What he told me was very, very close to what the police report said. And this is part of the official story. This isn't even speculation. I'm talking about what is documented by uh, Fabio Alonso in his report and the other police officers who arrived on the scene. Okay. So some of the details, you know, surrounding like how Richie was found, okay, who found his body. Tony told me that stuff and it lines up almost perfectly with the police report which is what we discussed in episode one. Tony told me all of that. And he told me from the perspective of him being there. He told you this in 2010. Yeah. And I'm sitting there with the police report, you know, checking his story against what I could just literally read in real time as he's talking. And it's not inconsistent with what he's, what he's saying. Yeah. You know, so I'm going like, wow, like, okay, so this guy, I mean, like I said before, you have to take what he says with a grain of salt, but that does not mean he lies all the time. But did he say anything specifically about what had happened inside Chuck's house? Yeah. So this is the story that Tony tells me. I said, so what happened? And he said, well, it was the three of us. And I said, okay. And he basically said that the three of them were on the side of the house and Jerry as, you know, the official story is Jerry that gives uh, Richie a boost. Richie goes through the window. And at this point, Tony starts walking towards the sidewalk. And um, his job was to be the lookout. And that's where he was standing when Richie got shot. And Jerry was on the side of the house. And when Jerry heard the gunshot, he panicked. And um, Tony heard the gunshot, too. And when he saw Jerry panicking, he panicked, too. And they both ran away. That is the closest that Tony Simmons got to admitting anything to me in 2010. The next part of the story was actually even more useful than him just admitting that he was there and he was the lookout. Now, I didn't believe he was the lookout, okay, because I still needed to figure out what was going on with the cassette. So once again, I brought up the cassette and I said, Tony, 
if you were standing on the sidewalk holding the cassette player, how do you capture all of this stuff that Bob Lane describes in the cassette? He says, well, I don't remember the cassette and I don't, like, I'm not, I can't answer to the cassette. Um, but you know, I was there, I was with them and I was the lookout. Tony had also confirmed the nature of the relationship between Jerry and Willard Allensworth. Tony Simmons told me that Jerry and Willard did sort of have a thing, you know, they, they shared a tent together. And the significance of it is the fact that Chuck knew that, and that's why Chuck used uh, Willard as bait for Jerry. Tony would continue with his story, telling Mike that he wanted to go back to Chuck's house because he was worried that Richie could be seriously hurt. He was, after all, one of his closest friends. But Tony also did not want to get into trouble because if Richie was hurt, and the police came, he could be implicated in the burglary. So, instead, he decided to go to Richie's house. After running away with Jerry, he went back to Richie's house, and he just pretended like he was looking for Richie. And his mom said, no, we don't know where he is. And um, and he said this was around dinner time, so it's maybe two hours later, like six o'clock, you know? Now, he knew the brushes well enough this is what he told me, that, that he was like family with them. And that, you know, he would be invited for dinner. Like, he could stay and wait for Richie because he knew Richie's sisters and Richie's parents well enough to where they trusted him and they would just allow him to sit and watch TV until Richie came home. And I said, well, when they started to get nervous and Richie's dad, you know, went to Chuck's and was looking for him, I said, did you go with them? And he said, no. And I said, why? I said, you know, your friend could have been hurt. Like, you didn't know that Richie was already dead at that point. I said, you know, weren't you concerned? And he said, well, I was, I was nervous and I didn't want to get in trouble. And he said that he and Richie's mom were really close and that he basically stayed with her while she was making calls. He actually helped her because she was, you know, asking different friends, you know, different people's numbers and stuff. And Tony was there to advise her. So they felt like Tony was just being helpful. And they were happy that he was there to sort of assist, you know, in any way he could. It was only after Richie's father and his sister's boyfriend had returned from Chuck's house after looking for him and had observed something lying on the living room floor that resembled a duffel bag that Tony realized something was very wrong. At that point, Tony realized that, you know, Richie was probably seriously hurt. Yeah. And he said to me that it was, it was really difficult for him to sit there and not say anything. And uh, they called Chuck. I think it was the second or maybe even the third time that they called Chuck. The first time they called Chuck, he just said he didn't know what it was. And then the second, third time, he started to get nervous. And I think it was the third time that he just said, you better hope and pray that that's not Richie on the floor or something like that. Right. So basically, he was there and he says that he was there when Chuck drove up, he was there when the cops showed up. He said the, the firemen came first, you know, the fire rescue were the first ones to come. And um, they went through the door or whatever, and they found the body. And he was there when the cops sort of put the tape up or whatever. It was a crime scene. And he was there when he said that uh, Chuck drove up. And he was the one who told me that Chuck had a, a, an emotional meltdown, like on the scene when he found out it was Richie, that he was banging on the car and, you know, crying and yelling like, why is it Richie? Like, why was it Richie? You know. Did Richie's family, you know, I don't know if you were able to talk to them at all. Could they confirm any of the stuff that Tony was telling you in 2010? Well, I tried to reach out to them. Initially, when I first started the book, or the idea for the book, when I was talking to Leanna, one of the first things we talked about was, you know, should we get permission from Richie's family? Do we need to get permission, you know, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So with Facebook, you know, I, we found them. It didn't take long to find Richie's sister and um, her boyfriend, who's now her husband. And so I made an effort to contact them. I sent them a friend request. And then there was another person, um, one of my old classmates, this girl, Joanna, and she dated Richie. I think she was Richie's first girlfriend. Okay. Um, and I knew her pretty well. Also, what happened was Joanna's older sister, who was close in age to Richie's older sister, 
they wound up becoming best friends. And I think they're still best friends to this day. So one of the contacts that I made was Joanna and then Joanna's older sister. And I sent her a message on Facebook asking, you know, if she could talk to Lorraine and, um, and none of them responded. It, it was clear to me that they didn't want to be part of this book. The, well, at least in those days, it was just the research for the book. I tried contacting them again more recently since we've been doing this podcast and they still haven't responded. So unfortunately, to answer your question, um, no, I haven't spoken with Richie's family. And what really sucks about that is that, you know, one question could just resolve this whole thing. It would just, you know, I could just ask her, was Tony Simmons there? Do you remember him being there when they found your brother? And if she said, yeah, Tony Simmons was there, he was over the house, he was helping my mom, like, make phone calls, and then that would totally confirm everything Tony told me. Another thing Tony told Mike in 2010 was about the amount of hatred that existed between Jerry and Chuck. And there were good reasons. Jerry was angry about the sexual molestation, and Chuck saw Jerry as a threat, someone who could potentially expose him as a pedophile. But if Jerry had resisted Chuck's advances, as he claimed in his 1983 deposition, then Chuck had nothing on him, nothing he could use to blackmail in exchange for his silence. And there was something else that came as quite a surprise to Mike. It was a piece of information that Tony shared about the placement of the gun. The last sort of point that he made of significance was... um, so I was trying to get him to admit that he was in the house, but he, he wouldn't. And then when I said, well, Tony, you know, Chuck always claimed that he aimed the gun at the door frame, that he didn't aim the gun at the door. And I have his statement to the detective, and I was about to sort of, you know, explain it a little further, right? And he cut me off in mid-sentence, and he said, that's bullshit. And I was like, what do you mean? He said... Chuck aimed that gun at the door. And I, I was like, okay. I said, well, how do you know that? He goes, I just know it. He goes, he aimed the gun at the door. He thought Jerry was breaking into his house and he was trying to kill Jerry. And there's no doubt about it in my mind. He said, if there's anything that I'm sure about, it's the fact that Chuck hated Jerry and wanted him dead. And he said, he pointed the gun straight at the door. And, you know, he said, Chuck was really good at that shit, you know, because of Vietnam. And he knew what he was doing. And he, he set that gun up to kill. And I go, well, well, how do you know that? How can you be so sure? And he was just like, I just know it. And he never told me how or why, but he just says, I just know it. Okay. So that's, you know, and... and or do you think Chuck might have told him that he planned on doing that? It could be. It could also be that maybe he knew the way the gun was positioned because he was in the house and he saw it. Mm. So um, that's what I'm saying. Like, this leaves possibilities open. In 1983, Jerry Burkowski was questioned again in a second deposition as a result of him being a target and potential victim of Chuck Falco. Since Jerry was now on the side of the plaintiff, that plaintiff being the state of Florida, and helping them build a case against Chuck. He had no reason to lie about his involvement in the burglary of Chuck's house in 1979 that had led to Richie's death. He was given immunity, and ironically, as a result, Jerry's second deposition serves as a more effective source of information than in 1979, when he basically said nothing. The main thing that's different is that in 1979, Jerry is still worried about being prosecuted for the burglary, Um, as little as just helping Richie through the window. I mean, at bare minimum, that much, you know, and at most, to what degree he was involved in the shooting. But, uh, but in 79, I mean, he's, he's just boldface lying. I mean, he's not, he's not giving uh, the lawyers any traction whatsoever. You know, Chuck's lawyer, at the time, I guess it's Mr. Lipton in the 79 one. And then um, in 83, it's a different lawyer. It's Schwartz. And Schwartz is not being very nice to, uh, to Jerry. I mean, he's really, really trying to intimidate him. And he's trying to uh, manipulate Jerry's character. He's trying to paint Jerry out to be a thief. 
um, a liar, uh, someone who can't be trusted. All Jerry knows in the 83 deposition is that he's not going to be prosecuted. Yeah, um, because he was the victim this time. Right. He was Chuck's target for this crime. You know, he was the one who could have been kidnapped. And there doesn't seem to be any hesitation on his part to talk about the shooting anymore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Jerry's answers are different. You know, now they're, he's talking more, he's being honest, and he does admit to being with Richie. And he does admit to being part of the burglary. And uh, the lawyer, at, at different times, the lawyer is trying to trip Jerry up. And he says, oh, by the way, did you ever own an orange tank top? And there's a hesitation. And then he says, no, you know, so like, you could tell that he's trying to get Jerry to sort of place himself inside the house to incriminate himself. Um, he asks directly a couple different times if he was in the house the day that Richie got shot. Um, he asks if he was in the house uh, any, any of the preceding days. So Jerry, um, admitting to as much stuff as he does in the 83 um, deposition, you know, gives us a little bit of perspective on the whole thing. Yeah. Now, we have to sort of, once again, we have to try to be objective here and analyze this a couple different perspectives. Well, number one, Jerry never mentions that Tony's with them, which I think is problematic in the deposition. Yeah. Jerry never says, you know, well, it wasn't just me and Richie. It was also Tony Simmons. So that kind of hurts the theory that Tony was with them. Why would Jerry have any reason uh, to deny that Tony was there? Other than, he wouldn't. You know, not wanting to be a rat. I'm sure he'd rat him out in two seconds. I don't think Jerry cared at all about Tony. They, they weren't close friends. But, um, or just not wanting to give any more information than he has to. I, I think that's most likely it. The lawyer never opens up the door for him to mention the possibility of Tony Simmons being there. He's just working under the assumption that it's Richie and Jerry and that's it. So one thing we haven't really covered in much detail yet is that Chuck always believed that Jerry was in the house that day. Yeah, there's got to be a reason for that. You know, it's not just based on the fact that he hated Jerry. I mean, he might have hated Jerry before he set up the gun. He might have been intending to shoot Jerry. Um, He probably hated Jerry even more, you know, after the shooting. But um, none of that is consistent with what we hear Uh, Kogan say on the tape where, you know, Chuck Falco always believed that Jerry Burkowski was in his house the day that Richie Brush was shot, right? Yeah. And it could be Jerry plus Tony or whatever, because he knew that the gun was set up a certain way. And when he saw the way it was when he came home, when when they found Richie's body, that it wasn't the way that he set it up. Mm Mm-hmm. Though we can't be 100% sure, Mike is pretty certain that Chuck's reasons for believing Jerry was there the day of the shooting had something to do with the alignment of the gun. Additionally, there's the orange tank top and why the police felt that this article of clothing was important enough to be sent to the lab for forensics testing. In the second half of this episode, we're going to posit alternative scenarios. We'll be playing in the realm of speculation And you may or may not agree, but what we would like is for you to apply your own critical thinking skills in deciding what really happened on July 18th, 1979. We'll be right back. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So, what would be the official version of what happened? Right. So, the official story is that Richie and Jerry decide to break in the house. They know Chuck's gone. He's gone for probably the rest of the week. He's in Kendall. And so Richie's over there watering the lawn. Jerry's with him. And they go to the side of the house. And Jerry helps Richie get through the window. And then Jerry hears a gunshot and gets scared and runs away. Um, And then acts like, you know, he didn't know what happened. Pretends like he wasn't even with Richie. Even says in his deposition that he wasn't with Richie, the first deposition. Right. And says he didn't find out what happened to Richie until later in the evening when one of the other scouts called him and told him what happened. And then, of course, he saw it on the news. But then for some reason, he suspiciously disappears for two weeks, you know, and the cops are looking for him. And finally, you know, he admits that he was with Richie and helped him get through the window. Right. Um, He gave him the boost. Yeah. And that's pretty much the official story. And that's all we ever heard, you know, as far as what the state was, um, you know, concerned with and the way the cops were investigating it was that, you know, it was only Richie who was really doing anything wrong. Jerry was an accomplice, but he didn't really, he just helped Richie get through the window. And then the worst thing that Jerry did was he didn't call for help when he knew that something bad happened to his friend. And that's why Jerry was ostracized from the neighborhood. And basically everyone thought he was a scumbag. And, and that I'm fine with that being the official story. If there was no orange tank top, we've got a problem with the orange tank top. That's number one. Right. And then number two is what Bob Lane told me, that I believe that that cassette was real. Now, just because I believe it was real doesn't mean it was real. But the way that Bob Lane told me that story and the way that, you know, I was thinking about it the other night. And the best way I can explain it is that. Bob Lane was not telling me and describing what was on the cassette to prank me. He wasn't laughing. It wasn't one of those situations where you're sort of bullshitting someone and stringing them along. And then you sort of say at the end, I got you kind of thing. And we all have a good laugh, you know. Um, That's not at all what his uh, demeanor was. Um, He was telling me this because, and I should have said this earlier, he like basically didn't want the burden on his shoulders alone. Like he knew about this cassette and he was the only other person who knew about it other than Tony and Jerry and maybe Tony's mom. And he didn't like that. He, he, you know, he, he, though he and Tony were friends, they weren't really hanging out as much as I was hanging out with Tony in those days. And Bob just felt like, Hey, this is a burden you should be carrying Mike, not me. And that's why he was telling me. He was like saying, Mike, you're this guy's best friend right now. And that's what he was saying to Tony. He was saying, I can't believe you haven't told Mike this. And by telling me what was on the cassette in such a detailed way, he was relieving himself of that burden. I'm also surprised about Bob Lane being such good friends with Tony's family that he didn't approach Tony's mom about it and say something to her. He might have. Maybe that's how his mom found out. See, I'm still convinced that you know, Shirley, which is Tony's mom, um, knew it. You know, her reaction, especially the one time where I just kind of mentioned the cassette, it was when Tony got deposed. And I just sort of said, sort of, you know, offhandedly, oh, does that have anything to do with that cassette? 
And then she gave me this look like, you're not supposed to know about that. And then she just said, that's none of your concern or something like that to me. Hmm. So going back to this alternate scenario, if we believe that cassette was real, then we have to put Tony at the house. You have to. And furthermore, you can't just put Tony at the house. Like I said in in episode six, in 2010, he admitted to me that he was with Richie and Jerry when Richie got killed. He claimed to be on the sidewalk. Right. He claimed to be the lookout. Yeah. You know, if you look at pictures of Chuck's house... Standing on the sidewalk, he's too far away to capture any significant sounds. Not the sounds that Bob Lane described to me. I would be totally fine with the official story. I'd be totally fine with Richie climbing through the window and opening the door and getting shot. And, you know, Chuck was trying to get Jerry. He thought Jerry was the one breaking into his house. He winds up shooting the kid that he cared about the most. And it's tragic. And, you know, that's the way the story still stands to this day in any official capacity. If you ask anyone else who knows about the story, that's what they're going to tell you. With all of this evidence that seems to have been completely ignored in previous investigations, can we come up with a scenario that satisfies everything, that gives us an answer as to why the t-shirt ended up at the crime scene and the cassette, if it's real. And Mike has no reason to believe otherwise. How do we place Tony's tape recorder inside Chuck's house? Which is the only way it could have reasonably captured the horrifying sounds as described by Bob Lane. With so many questions left unanswered, we'll present an alternate scenario, which is again, pure speculation, though based on the evidence and explore another version of what might have happened on that night. Okay, so walk us through this thing. Yeah. So, you know, we have to sort of retrace the steps and try to figure out, okay, well, what is really going on here? Like, you know, maybe something else happened, and only Chuck is aware of it. Right. Then we can talk about the setup of the booby trap for a moment here, and in particular, the alignment of the gun. Yeah. Chuck claimed that he actually pointed it at the wall. Is that correct? Well, actually, no. He never says that he aimed the gun at the wall. There's nothing in the statement where he says anything about aiming the gun at the wall. What he does say is initially he says that he aimed the gun at the side of the door. So I don't know what that means. Like that, Does that mean he's still aiming it at the door somewhat? Or does he mean the door frame? You see? Right. But the way that he says it, he's obviously saying to Alonzo, he's saying, I don't know what happened, man. Like, I didn't set it up to be lethal. I, I set it up just to scare the burglars away, you know? And that's the point he's trying to make. And Alonzo is helping him, which we've already talked about. The fact that Alonzo sort of gave him this softball over the plate when he says, and the door stuck, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's talking to a cop right now. And he doesn't, as far as I know, he doesn't know who this cop is and you know, or if he can trust him. But like we already said, you know, it sort of seems like maybe they talked a little bit before they started recording the statement and they sort of established a few things, you know. Um, and Alonzo's sitting there going like, um, well, if you set the gun up so that it wasn't aiming directly at the door, let's put it this way. If you set the gun up so that it wasn't aiming at the spot where the bullet eventually hit, right? That means that there was the the alignment had changed and that's what made it lethal. So that's just, that's a mistake. That's more like reckless manslaughter. That's like you did something dangerous, but your intent wasn't to kill. Mm -hmm. So together in that little line of questioning, they establish this uh, way out for Chuck where it's not premeditated. So the point I'm trying to make is that Chuck He had to have set the gun up in such a way where he was accounting for the sticky door. And once again, we can only speculate. But he always claimed that he set the gun up in such a way where it wasn't lethal. He could be lying, of course, right? We don't have to believe him. In other words, if he aimed the gun at the side of the door, 
and he was accounting for the sticky door, then by aiming the gun off to the side of the door a little bit, he knows he's making it lethal. Because he knows that when the door opens, it's going to realign the gun to the spot where the bullet eventually hits the door. So that means Chuck is intentionally making the gun lethal. Whereas if what Tony Simmons says is true, and we're assuming that Tony Simmons said this and was very insistent about this because he saw the gun set up because maybe he was in the house, right? Then he saw the gun aimed directly at the door. If that's the case, that's the version where Chuck is telling the truth and saying that, well, I set it up in such a way where it wasn't lethal by aiming it directly at the door, knowing that the alignment would change when the door opened and it would, the gun would move away from the door slightly. That's the point I'm trying to make is we don't know which one scenario here is true. Like we don't know which one it is. But we do know that what he said to Alonzo in the statement is assuming that Chuck didn't account for the sticky door. That He knows what he's doing. He's really good at setting up these traps. He set them up multiple times. And he's basically telling Alonzo, oh, yeah, like it didn't occur to me that when the person opens the door that it's going to slightly realign the gun in such a way to pull it, you know, and make it lethal. And Alonzo's going, yeah, well, there you go. There's your way out, dude. Like, there's, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the one version that I kind of don't believe more than the other two. One of the things that Tony Simmons said to you before in uh, in the phone call, right? You said he was adamant that Chuck had set up that gun to kill. Right. Uh, what Tony Simmons meant, and I think what he was doing was he was conflating not only, you know, what he saw. He saw the trap set up and he saw how it was aimed. But he's also including conversations that he had with Chuck. So what Tony Simmons was telling me in 2010 was that, no, Chuck always hated Jerry, even before Richie got killed. And that the whole point of the booby trap was to get rid of Jerry. And that is premeditated murder. If Chuck always believed that Jerry was in the house and did something nefarious, what is it that he thinks that Jerry could have done? Well, remember, we're pretty sure that the kids had keys. We know this because uh, Drucker, um, Ken Drucker, who was the assistant state attorney um, in the first case, you know, the, the shooting case, yeah. was asking Tony Simmons direct questions about the keys. Remember, that's when Tony said that I was the one who had the keys. You know, he was trying to implicate me in this whole thing, right? And we also know this because Leanna, Leanna remembered going into the house and, um, you know, her friend that she talked to, Nancy Huffman, confirmed to Leanna. Nancy said, no, Leanna, we were in the house. And Leanna said, well, did we break in? And Nancy said, no, we went through the front door. And and Leanna said, well, then he must have had keys or something to the door. And she said, yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. And it made sense at the time because Richie just told everyone that, no, Chuck, trust me. I take care of his lawn, and he gave me these keys in case there's an emergency, you know, to get into the house. That's what he would tell the kids. But then it turns out that most likely Chuck didn't give Richie keys. And this is where it gets weird. If Chuck did give Richie keys, for some reason, he does not tell Alonzo that when he gives his statement. Because remember, I said before, if Chuck knew that Richie had the keys, then why wouldn't he just say to Alonzo in the statement, why would Richie go through the bathroom window when he had the keys? He could have just gone right through the front door. Yeah. But he never says that. So the more I looked at supporting evidence, any sort of definitive statement that, okay, Chuck definitely gave Richie a spare set of keys, I couldn't find it. And it just seemed more and more likely that Richie stole a spare set of keys from Chuck. And this would make more sense. Um, so if we add all of these pieces together... And we say, okay, if they still had keys, and we've talked about this before, why didn't they just use the keys and go into the house and take the pot and then leave, right? Well, we know a couple days earlier that Richie tried to break in through the window, the bathroom window, and broke the bathroom window because this was on Monday. He thought Chuck was leaving to go to Kendall, um, but actually Chuck was just going to the bank. And when Chuck came back, Richie almost got caught red-handed. And so he had to get out of the bathroom window as as quickly as he could. Um, But 
this probably or you know for that matter i don't even know maybe he went into the house with the keys and then he couldn't leave through the front door because chuck was pulled up in his car and maybe that's why he just went out through the bathroom window yeah what i'm saying is that if the three kids let's just say tony jerry and richie have the keys they could have gone in the house and they could have seen the gun set up okay and What's so hard to believe with the scenarios, well, then why would Richie go through the bathroom window and trigger the gun, knowing that there's this gun set up and he's like risking his life? Like, why would he do that? And if you think about it, there is a reason for doing that, although it's kind of hard to believe that anyone would be stupid enough to do that. But um, if he really wanted Chuck to believe that someone was burglarizing Chuck's house and going through the window that of course that burglar wouldn't know that the gun is there and therefore the gun would have to be set off they'd have to set the gun off and they would have to make it look like it actually happened the way that Chuck would suspect it to happen and then Richie was just the one who said okay fine I'll do it you know I'm not going to get shot like you know we'll just we'll just move the gun a little bit and then there you have how the alignment of the gun is moved right and so um it's ballsy um, I'm not saying this is what happened. Okay. It's just, I'm just speculating here. Um, there's another version we could even throw in here where we could say, okay, maybe Jerry had the keys at this point in time and Richie didn't. Maybe Richie didn't know that the gun was there, but Jerry did. And this is probably more what Chuck probably thought. This is probably the reason why Chuck said what he said is that maybe Chuck found out by talking to the other scouts mm-hmm. that, you know, Somehow Jerry got the keys from Richie and Jerry goes in the house and knows that the gun is there beforehand, before Richie, maybe even earlier, like, and Jerry could have told Richie, hey, don't do that because the gun is there, but he doesn't tell Richie. Maybe he's mad at Richie. Maybe he's mad at the whole situation. Um, Once again, we don't know. Maybe he just wants to scare him. Rather than... Maybe, yeah, maybe he just wants yeah. right Richie to piss his pants and they just have a laugh, you know? Um, remember, this is a 22 and it's, it's, you know, nine times out of 10, you know, I mean, no one wants to get shot. And that's why it's kind of, this is a hard scenario to believe. But then again, these kids, they had a lot of experience with guns. They probably shot that exact rifle that was on the chair. I mean, right. they weren't afraid of that kind of gun. A lot of people consider a 22 to be just sort of like one step up from a BB gun, you know? So it's, it's a lot of speculation here. These kids are already, they're already risk takers. Right. It, without a doubt. Yeah. So we put these things together and we just see like, yes, there's definitely a possibility that all three kids could have been in the house. And then Richie just says, hey man, we can't just take the pot and leave. One of us has to set the trap off. And they're like, well, I'm not going to do it. And, I was like, and Richie's like, I'll do it. It's fine. You know, um, there's that possibility. There's the possibility that only Jerry knew that the gun or maybe Jerry and Tony knew that the gun was there. And they just thought it would be funny to not warn Richie. And they would just want to see his reaction, you know, when the gun went off and just have a laugh. And if that's the scenario, then that actually makes a lot of sense as to why Tony would be there with the tape recorder inside the house running the tape recorder. Uh to get that response from Richie. And, and they just thought it would be hilarious, you know? And they didn't think that he'd get shot, and they certainly didn't think that he would get mortally wounded, you know? And then we just follow the rest of, you know, the chain of events. It's like, okay, well, if Richie actually, if they're in the house and Richie's shot now and he's walking towards them, right? He's walking from the bathroom in the little hallway area, mm-hmm. and they see that he's been hurt really badly. One of them takes off their shirt and tries to stop the bleeding, you know, tries to help him. But then they realize that there's nothing they can do for him, and then they're scared, and they get the hell out of there. And then that lines up perfectly with what Bob Lane told me, which is Tony comes running over his house. It was around six o'clock in the afternoon or early evening, and and he's white as a ghost, and he's crying, and he's hyperventilating and he's got this cassette and he, they listen to it. And, you know, that lines up perfectly with what Bob Lane told me. And then Tony decides to go back in this scenario. Now he knows that Richie's dead, you see, and this psychologically, this actually makes more sense as to why uh, Tony didn't feel the need to go into the house. Cause he knows Richie's already dead, but he goes back anyway to just be around, you know, he's got this guilty conscience. He's like, he wants to know how this whole thing's going to play out. And this is very consistent with what P. 
people who are involved in these kinds of crimes do. They always go back to the scene of the crime, always. So um, it, it sees, the pieces start to fit together. If we just get out of this tunnel vision of the official story and we allow for the evidence to make sense, and while I can't sit here and tell you you know, exactly what happened. I can just share this information and, and give you sort of alternate theories. But it seems like every time I come up with one that seems pretty good, there's some piece that doesn't fit. And that's where we're at with this whole thing. You know, that's why we encourage the listener to sort of think for themselves and say like, okay, well, you know, maybe it is the official story. You know, the orange tank top, I wish we had more information about that. To this day, we just don't, there's no answer yeah. for the orange tank. If someone came forward and said, no, the, the shirt was mine. And it's like, okay, then that puts to, to rest that part. And then, okay, now maybe it is the official story. And maybe Bob Lane was just lying about the cassette. And then everything else is just the official story that we thought, you know, the whole time. But so far, no one has come forward and said, no, the orange tank top was mine. No one wants you know? to claim the orange tank top. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So now here's to, to make things even a little spookier. Um, Tony Simmons used to wear those exact kinds of shirts. He liked tank tops. There was one that I remember where the F in Florida was sort of drawn in such a way where the F was like a a face with like sunglasses. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it was like a sunglasses wearing face for the F and then it would say Florida. And that might have been the logo actually because I kind of remember that one. But what's what's even creepier is that I remember Tony owning an orange tank top. That had Florida on it. And, you know, I, I wish I've got all these pictures, you know, in these boxes. And I and if I could ever find one, just sort of randomly looking through old photos, and it's like, oh, my God, there's Tony wearing the Florida tank top. I mean, that would just be a slam dunk, you know? Maybe someone out there has a photo yeah. of Tony wearing an orange tank top. Yeah. If we could find that, then there'd be no doubt that he was there, took his shirt off, and, you know. Um, but otherwise it's just speculation we'll be right back So ultimately, I tend to lean more towards rejecting the official story um, after looking at the evidence. And because for me, the pieces have to fit. And I've never had a problem accepting the official story as long as the evidence supports it. Um, but it doesn't. And so um, I don't know what happened in that house. But I, if I had to put money on it, I would say that it wasn't what the official story claims. I would say that there's some... Something nefarious was going on in there. Um, and, you know, the last bit of it, which is the most tragic, is it probably still comes back to the alignment of the gun. And you can just imagine that if these kids see this gun and it's aimed at the door and then they say, hey, we got to set it off. Right. We have to set the gun off. We can't just come in here using the keys and take the pot. And then Chuck sets up this elaborate trap and then he still gets ripped off. He's going to know that the person wasn't going through the bathroom window and it's going to be someone with keys or whatever. So um, if these guys are there and then they see the gun and they're like, hey, we got to set this thing off. And they're like, well, I'm not going through there if the barrel is aimed right at the door. You know, no one would do that. So what do they do? They change the alignment of the gun. But by doing so, they're actually making it lethal. Because now when Richie opens a door, it pulls the gun so that it, when it discharges, it hits the center of the door, which is, you know, you can just imagine this, right? It's like when you're trying to hit a moving target and you lead your shot, you know, like if you're, you know what I'm saying? Like if you ever play football mm -hmm. or baseball or something like that and you don't throw the ball to where the person is, if the person's running, you throw it to where you think they're going to be when the ball gets there, you know, so you, you lead it, like you, you throw it to a spot. That's why I think maybe Chuck didn't need to test it because he was just thinking of it in his head. Like, okay, I know the barrel of the gun is going to move this much, right? He's calculating for that. So yeah. he aims it at the door and then it doesn't hit the door. But the kids not knowing that or not considering that see the gun aimed at the door and they're like, okay, well, someone has to set this trap off. 
you know, okay, well, let's move it. Let's move the gun at least. So when it goes off, it hits the side, you know, it hits the wall or it hits the door frame, you know, for God's sake. I mean, I am taking a risk here, you know, and they do it and they move it and they just happen to move it in such a way where, you know, it, it makes it lethal. It, it pulls the alignment back towards the door. And that's exactly what Alonzo and, and Chuck say in the statement. Because Alonzo says, the sticky door must have changed the alignment of the gun. And Chuck says, yeah, that's it. It must have. That's almost an exact quote. And so they're already discussing that the, the night of the shooting. And, you know, so that is a topic that is, like I said before in, in episode six, that that we don't have to speculate on that. We're not speculating that they were discussing the alignment of the gun. They did discuss the alignment of the gun and they did factor in the sticky door because we have that, that's a documented statement. So um, the kids probably didn't know that if the kids did mess with the gun. And now that sort of supports Chuck's belief that he's thinking, okay, well, Jerry must've been in the house. He changed like a dumbass. He changed the alignment of the gun and he wound up killing Richie when if... If, okay, they want to take the pot, take the pot, but don't mess with the gun. Like, you know, like, just leave that alone. And, you know, it could have just been an honest mistake, a tragic mistake, where they were just, you know, doing stuff that they shouldn't have been doing, taking chances they shouldn't have been taking. And then they made the boneheaded mistake of, like, moving the gun in such a way where it actually made it lethal, you see. And, and any one of these scenarios, you know, you could pick and choose little details here and there. Um, I welcome anyone who listens to this to consider maybe something I missed. Like I said, I had this theory about the bullet hole and Richie crunching over. And after doing the math, I realized, okay, that's a dead end. You know, there's, there's nothing to that. So, um, but uh, you know, you got to think that way. You have to think outside of the box. I know for a lot of people who you know have moved on from this story, uh, accepting the official version is enough for them. And perhaps that's how Richie's family feels. You know, they just feel like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, my brother's dead, and that's what matters. And we've moved on. It's been years now. We don't want to think about it. And I totally respect that. But I've had my own personal experience with this that came to me via Tony Simmons and came to me via this cassette tape. You know, that Bob Lane described to me. And if that hadn't happened to me, I'd probably have no issue letting the story go. And I wouldn't be writing a book. And I wouldn't think that there's anything interesting to talk about here. But after investigating it and doing research, I realized, my goodness, there's so much more to this story. And it affected me. You know, it had an effect on me in my life. And um, if it hadn't, I, like I said, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't have wasted any time on it. You know, well, something that's bothered me is how the cassette could have captured all of those sounds. I mean, I, I I know that kind of cassette recorder, and we all had those when we were kids and played around with them. And, you know, it, it doesn't capture much at a distance at all. You'd have to be pretty close. Um, everything has to be pretty nearby you. So I want to know, how, how do you think that the cassette could have captured all those sounds that Bob Lane described. Well, what he describes is, and I remember when he was telling me this, I was picturing it in my mind, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it seems to me that Tony would have had, had to have been in two spots, not at the same time, but he would have been in one spot to capture certain sounds and then move to another spot in order to capture the, the remainder of the sounds, which is totally possible. And if we speculate that the kids could get in the house with the keys, and if we're accepting this version where Richie knows that the gun is there and he's just going through the door to set off the trap, um, we know that at least Jerry or Tony, uh, it's, it's hard to know if both of them or maybe just one of them has to be on the side of the house with Richie. Someone has to give him a boost. Right. And that's what Bob Lane describes hearing that the three of them are talking and then, you know, one of them gives him the boost. I I think it was Jerry 
And you can hear that, and you can hear him sort of fussing with the window. Because remember, the window had broken glass on it, so it was kind of a touchy thing to get through. And then he gets, you know, the window leads directly into the shower slash bathtub sort of thing. Um, and so Richie wound up, when he went through the window, he banged his knee on something, you know, either on the, maybe on the handle to the, to the sl- sliding door, or maybe just the edge of the bathtub, or maybe the thing that you keep the soap on. Um, something was sticking out and he banged his knee and, and he said, you know, like, oh, fuck. Fuck. So that was captured on the cassette. Um, and then you just sort of hear him, you know, going through and, you know, sort of normal noises in the bathroom. And then um, just sort of like quiet. And then you just hear this this bang sound that Bob Lane described as just distortion on the cassette. And that's exactly what those cassette players, they would distort. You know, they were condenser mics, little condenser mics, and they would just break up if the decibels were too much. So it probably sound like a firecracker if the tape hadn't distorted, because that's what 22 sound like. They're just a little pop. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what he describes. And at that point, he said, you just hear sort of like chaos. Like you can hear the, you know, when someone's running with a cassette, like with, you know, we've seen this before in news clips and things, and someone's running away from something like a tornado chaser or something. And, you know, you just hear the sound of footsteps and the ruffled, you know, like rubbing against the clothes and stuff like that. And then after that, like, you know, he just said it was just a few seconds or something, you know, Um, he said that you, you can hear Richie saying that it burns, that it burns. And um, I can't imagine that that sound was picked up from the side of the house, because we know that Richie opens the door and then stumbles down the hallway and then collapses on the floor. So he's moving. He would be moving away from the cassette player. You see, yeah. At that point, he's in the living room, pretty much, right? Right, right, exactly. And I think at one point, he puts his hand on the chair because blood was found on the chair. So he he probably rested on the chair for a second and then stumbled forward, the chair that the gun was on. You know, um, and uh, I, I, my assumption is that when we hear the ruffling noises, that's Tony running into the house to see how bad Richie's been shot, and. Um, and as he approaches Richie, he's probably lying on the floor right now. He hears him saying that it's burn. It burns because bullets burn, you know. And then he just sort of starts losing it. You know, he's losing consciousness and he just starts, you know, moaning and groaning and gurgling. And, you know, and what Bob Lane described is this, these gurgly noises, like this, this sound of like what bodies do, like, you know, once you pass away was, was pretty distra- I think that's the most disturbing part of the whole thing. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, how does Bob Lane know any of this? You know, we didn't have the Internet back then. He's not like I said, he's not an intellectual. He's he's just a guy who likes to work on motorcycles and bikes and things like that. You know, he's he's not even that great of a storyteller. So how does he come up with this story that is just so accurate in so many ways? You know, the distortion and the, it burns as opposed to just saying, like, if you're going to make up a story and you don't know anything about what it's like to be shot, wouldn't you just say, I've been shot, I've been shot. If you're going to make up a story, right? You do it like they do in the movies, you know? Um, right. But no, he, he said it burns. And then, and then he, you know, when he said the weird noises, you know, because your heart is not pumping anymore and the body does really weird things once that, that whole machine stops, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's, it's quite gruesome and, and it's in a way it's, it's disrespectful, you know, because, Everyone has the right to sort of die with some dignity. And um, I don't think that was Tony's aim, you know, was to record this personal stuff, you know, but he did. He just did it by default and it was captured. So that's the only way that I can see this cassette uh, making any sense as far if, if, if it were real, like that Tony would have had to have been in the side of the house initially Gun goes off, then he races into the house and he captures the rest of what Bob Lane hears being in the house, you know, being next to Richie. And maybe it's at that point that, you know, one of them is taking off their shirt and, you know, trying to stop the bleeding or, or, you know, help him in some way. Mm -hmm. Or the other one goes to the phone and, and tries to make a call and then realizes, no, we shouldn't do that. That's stupid. We shouldn't even be here kind of thing, you know, and then they just decide to race out of there. So did Chuck ever stop? molesting boys 
Chuck never changed his approach. And that's ultimately what did him in. Next time on Booby Trap. I felt like I was just sort of hanging out. Yeah. It's kind of like a ghost walking around my old neighborhood because I knew that like I had no future there. I'll never forget the look on his face. He was so proud. He was so happy, you know, to do something nice. He sounds like he was the type of person who wanted to be included. He did. He did. And he was. And I know that on a certain level, he knew that I cared about him like as a good friend. He's a habitual predator. And he's not going to stop. The Miami Chronicle's Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragamani. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode. Dan Wolf, Mark McCartney, Mr. Sonny Duval, The Big Wheel, Jazar, X-Talk Rue, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you our listeners. Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.